All right. Well, good morning again. Good to see you all. Thank you again, Pastor Sean, for the invitation to be here this, this weekend. I was here. I was trying to nail it down in my mind. I want to say it was August 2021, so maybe about a year and a half ago, and I was, I was commenting to those that were here for the first hour. Uh, place looks great. It didn't look like this last time I was here. So um, got to see the new children's wing because uh, when I first came that first time, I was kind of got the grand tour and Pastor Sean was showing me kind of the children's wing that was next up. And, uh, and my kids are here with me this weekend, so they get to kind of enjoy that. So my wife Charity is here with, with me and, and our three kids. Jaden is seven, Judah is six, and Juliet is four. And it's nice to have them uh, here with me. So I didn't realize, but I guess in the in-between time, my dad has been here at this church. When, when was that, Pastor Sean? We've been there. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Because I was going to say, uh, like, I, I, I suppose my dad and I are pretty similar. I've heard that a lot. We have similar mannerisms. I think a similar, like, way of thinking, sense of humor. But my mom is Puerto Rican, so I get her color. And my dad, if there ever was an extrovert, it's him. And I am not an extrovert, I am an introvert. So I always tell people, like, if you've met my dad, just imagine him if he went to the beach for three months in a row and then popped a Xanax. Like, that would be kind of me. Um, but, but anyway, so I'm glad to be here, be here this weekend. Really what we're concentrating on is a, a, a financial health weekend, talking about what the Bible has to say about finances from a biblical worldview. I hope you will come back tonight. Tonight's going to be very practical. So here's, here's what I found. In the area of finances, because it's such a, a difficult subject, because it's such an important subject, first of all, we need to know what the Bible teaches about finances. We need to see what God's Word has to say about wealth and how it impacts our life. But then sometimes we just need to talk about, all right, but I have bills, and I have a paycheck, and I have a mortgage or a rent, and I have groceries, and I mean, I don't know about you, but these last few years have been interesting, okay? Um, I mean, I'm sure you all are just so financially savvy and so financially set up that you don't even, when you go to the gas station, you probably don't even look at what the prices say. You go to the grocery store, you don't even care. You just throw stuff in your grocery cart. But the other people, not you, but the other people are noticing that things are more expensive these days, okay? And, and they've noticed that we went through a whole pandemic where things got uh, shut down and turned on, you know, things were turned upside down and, and people had to change jobs and people were working remotely. And then 2022 comes along and they're looking at their 401ks and it's going down, not up. And they're looking at now banks are, are closing down and people are wondering, should I be worried? And in all of that financial chaos, maybe you're coming in this morning and, and there's not uh, a peace in your heart around your finances or, or our world and our financial system. And can I remind you this morning, can I encourage you this morning that everything we need to have a healthy and joyful and fulfilled life in our finances, we will find within God's Word. But then tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about how do we live that out? How do we practically start to implement these principles in our saving, in our giving, in our spending, in taxes, in, in debt, in all these different areas. So whether you are a retiree, whether you are a teenager, whether you are doing great in your finances, whether you are struggling, anywhere in between tonight, there's going to be something for you. And so I hope you will come back and be a part of that and uh, looking forward to that time as well. 
This morning, in our morning service, I want to speak to you. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Treasure Hunt. Treasure Hunt. You ever been on a treasure hunt before? Uh, growing up, we, um, my family, we didn't, we didn't do trick-or-treat. Even if we wanted to do trick-or-treat, we lived like in, well, not the middle of nowhere, but we lived in a neighborhood where there was like hardly any houses and kids, and so uh, we didn't have, and we didn't have trunk-or-treat or anything like that. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to get into Halloween. I'm already trying to cover money, so that's controversial enough, so I'm not going to bring in another controversial topic. But uh, what we would do, what my parents would do, is they would do a treasure hunt for us. You know, since we didn't actually get to like get candy from knocking on strangers' doors, they thought, well, we'll do a treasure hunt. That'll be the way that you get some candy. So they'd set it all up, and it became like a big tradition. Like we really looked forward to the treasure hunt every year. So what they would do is they'd have all of us go to like one bedroom or one part of the house, and we had to stay there while my parents set it all up. And then sure enough, we'd come out and they would hand us our first clue. Like every great treasure hunt begins with the first clue. And we'd have to read it and then figure out, oh, that means we have to go to the laundry room. And then we'd run to the laundry room. We'd look all over for the next clue. And then, oh, we have to go out to the garage. And we have to go to mom and dad's room. We have to go to the doghouse. And like, you know, every place around our yard and our home until finally the last clue eventually led us to the treasure, which, of course, for a kid, there's no greater treasure than a box of candy. And we, we love that. And we look forward to it every year. But what I found is that you don't really outgrow the excitement of a treasure hunt just because you become an adult. We all kind of like treasure stories. Think about how many stories there are in our society, whether it's books or movies or shows, things around searching for treasure, right? National treasure and the Indiana Jones stories. And we've got Treasure Island and the Count of Monte Cristo, and we have shows on the Discovery Channel and on the History Channel about people right now in 2023 who are still out there looking for treasure. And there's something exciting about it, something captivating about it. But one of the most famous treasure hunt stories is actually in the Bible. And maybe you already kind of know where I was going with this. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, that's where we'll be this morning. Jesus often used parables in his teaching. What is a parable? A parable is a short fictional story that's meant to illustrate a truth, a spiritual truth. And Jesus often used parables to uh, illuminate, to, to make plain to his audience the spiritual truth he was trying to communicate. And the amazing thing about Jesus' parables was for those who actually wanted to know the truth and understand him, it made sense for them. But for those who were just looking for a reason to condemn Jesus, it hid the truth from them. So it was this amazing thing where Jesus was able to impart truth. But not always were parables immediately obvious to Jesus' audience. And in Matthew in particular, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each Gospel gives a little bit of a different angle on the life of Jesus, a little bit of a different style, a different author. All of us paint a complete picture, all of them together paint a complete picture of his life. But Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And in the book of Matthew, you're going to find him talking about the kingdom of heaven very, very often. The kingdom of heaven. You'll find that phrase over 30 times in the book of Matthew. Now, why did Matthew talk about the kingdom of heaven? Why did he focus in on that so much? Well, for the Jewish audience, that was a very, very important 
facet of their thinking, the kingdom. The Jewish people were looking for a kingdom. Keep in mind what is happening at the time that Jesus is living and ministering there in Israel. Is Israel free? Are the Jewish people free? No, they're not. They're under the oppression of Rome. They're part of the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers walk their streets. They pay taxes to Caesar. This is the environment in which they're living. And the Jewish people know that the Old Testament promises that there will be a Messiah. That one day there will be a ruler who comes from the Jewish people who will rule and reign in Jerusalem and he will set up a, a reign of prosperity and peace and, and overthrow power. And they want that. Man, do they want that. But here comes Jesus. And he's talking about a kingdom, but not the kingdom that they think they want, a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And this is why Matthew so often comes back to this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus wants to give them what they really need. And what do they really need? Do they need somebody to overthrow Rome? No, not primarily. What they primarily need is a spiritual savior, but they don't realize that yet. They don't think that's what they need, but they do. And so Jesus, little by little, is trying to illuminate and show them and teach them, I'm here to give you what you really need. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, a very short parable. But man, what a powerful parable it is. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 is where we're going to pick up. Jesus is here in Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Just a large lake really is what the Sea of Galilee is. It's where Jesus spent much of his ministry uh, teaching and preaching. It became his headquarters for, for much of his time that he was uh, here on earth ministering. And, and uh, here in Capernaum, he spent the day teaching the crowds. His disciples are there. People have gathered. There's some religious leaders in the crowd. And he's teaching parables about the kingdom of heaven. And there are these short stories, these fictional stories, trying to illustrate a truth. And so Jesus teaches them the, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a sower spreading seed on a field. And some of the seed hits good soil and it grows, but others go by the wayside and, and they don't grow. And well, the, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed, something that's very, very small but grows into an enormous tree. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like leaven, it's like yeast in, a, in a, 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 a loaf of bread that you don't really see it, but it causes the entire loaf to rise once it's baked. And he's teaching these things. Well, after the day is done and the people go home, his disciples are hanging around and his disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, earlier you were talking about the sower and the seed in the kingdom of heaven. And yeah, we don't get it. What was that all about? And so Jesus begins to explain to them that the, the, the seed is the gospel. It's God's word. It's the life-changing message of, of the gospel. And it's not always received well. When it is received well, it it grows and, and new life is created. But sometimes, for various reasons, people don't receive the gospel. And so he begins to explain these things. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then Jesus decides to give another parable. His disciples are listening. They're trying to understand. They're trying to comprehend. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is it, this thing that you're trying to teach us about? And then Jesus says, let me put it another way. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and let's read here what Jesus tells his disciples. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, 
The which, when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof, goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. That's the story. Now, let's picture it, okay? How would the disciples understand the story? I think they would have resonated with it very quickly. They could picture themselves in the story. Here comes a man. He's on his way home from work. He's walking through a field, which, by the way, in those days, that, that was common practice. You, you walk through people's fields. It was kind of a treated many times as a sort of public property as long as you were passing through. And he's walking through a field on his way home, and he trips and he stumbles, and he turns around expecting to see a rock, very rocky soil in that area. But instead of seeing a rock, he notices this is a wood protruding from the ground. And so on further inspection, he begins to clear away some dirt and he realizes there's a box here. Why is there a box here? And as he begins to unearth that box, he picks it up out of the ground, he opens it up, and inside is more money than he has ever seen before. Gold and silver and jewelry and precious gems. And he immediately realizes this money will set him up for life. This amount of money, he can do whatever he wants, move wherever he wants, have whatever house, food, all of it can be his if this were his treasure. But in that same instance, he also realizes the predicament because it's not his treasure because it's not his field. The law in those days stipulated that anything found on a property belonged to the property owner. So if he were to take this treasure and it were to come to light where he had gotten it from, he would have to forfeit the entirety of it because it's not legally his. So what does he do? Very quickly, he thinks on his feet, he puts the box back, he covers it back up with dirt, very quickly looking around over his shoulder to make sure nobody's seeing all this play out, maybe moves a rock over the place and tries to make sure that the dirt doesn't look disturbed so that anybody else passing by doesn't notice that what he had been doing, and then he goes home. And that night as he's sitting at dinner, he's spaced out. He doesn't Notice the kids making a mess in the living room. He doesn't hear what his wife is telling him. All he is thinking about is this treasure, and then it hits him. I know what I have to do. I know how I can get my hands on that treasure. I have to go and buy that field, because if it's my field, then legally no one else will have claim to that treasure. So the next day he goes out to find, whose field is that? And he tracks the man down and he goes to him and he says, hey, that, that field that you have, you know, the one where the olive tree is up at the top of the hill and you know, I come this way, to, that's yours, right? Yeah, yeah, that's mine. Would you ever consider selling it? Oh, you know, maybe I could let it go. How, how much? How much are we talking? Let's say 300, 300 denarii. Hmm, 300 denarii, okay. Uh, I'll get back to you. And he goes home. He says, honey, get the money out of the piggy bank. Okay, how much do we have here? That's not even close. Okay, uh, what if we sold the mule? How much would that be? And what if we sold the chickens? What if we sold the goats? And that's still not anywhere close. What if we sold the house? And he begins to add it up all in his mind, and he realizes, I'm going to have to sell every single thing we own to come up with this money, but once I have the money, then I'll have the treasure. So he does, puts the for sale sign in the yard, has the yard sale with all the possessions, goes out and sells everything that they have, takes that money back to that man and says, hey, do we have a deal? Here's the money. The man says, we have a deal. And that night, he celebrates in style. And he is not regretful <laughs> in the least about all the things he just sold, 
He's not worried about the house that now somebody else belong, that belongs to somebody else. He's not worried about the livestock that he had to get rid of. He's not concerned about all of it, any of it, because now he has the treasure of a lifetime. And you see the story, right? Makes sense. Many of us, dare I say all of us, if we were in a similar situation, would probably do the same. But what is Jesus getting at here? Okay. What is the point of the story? Can I submit to you that the big idea is this? The treasure of God's kingdom is far greater than anything you could have in this life. That is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. The treasure of the kingdom of heaven is so greater, so much more valuable than anything that you could have in this life that if you were given the option, you would gladly part with everything else in order to gain the treasure of God's kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven? Just so we're clear, the kingdom of heaven is the place where God reigns supreme, not mankind. The kingdom of heaven as opposed to what? Kingdom of earth, right? We know what earthly kingdoms are like. We've seen them come and go throughout our human history, right? The Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire. And kingdoms of man rise and they fall. And they're, they're, they're fragile and they're fleeting and, and they're flawed. But the kingdom of heaven is perfect. The kingdom of heaven is just. The kingdom of heaven is the place where joy and peace reign, where there is no, no sickness, there is no death, there is no conflict and turmoil and war. The kingdom of heaven is that perfect place. It's the place that we were designed to be. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall where they enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, where they walked with him in the cool of the day, when they did not know sin, they did not know death, they did not know pain. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus is trying to explain to his audience. I have a perfect place, a wonderful place prepared for you. It is where I reign supreme. It is not like your kingdoms. And that place, that existence is so, so better than anything you could ever have in this life that if you could truly grasp a hold of it, you would trade anything, anything in order to gain it. That is what Jesus is teaching. So I want us to, work, to zoom in on three words in the short parable. We're gonna reread it. And I want you to really focus in on three particular words. And I think these three words are gonna help us to unlock the truth of what Jesus was trying to teach us about the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Number one, the first word I want you to notice in this parable is the word kingdom. Notice the word kingdom. Let's look at it again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden a field. Now, I just said there's two different types of kingdoms, right? There's heavenly kingdom, but there's also earthly kingdoms. So the question I have for you this morning is this. Which kingdom are you living for? Which kingdom are you living for this morning? Are you living for an earthly kingdom or are you living for a heavenly one? You say, Nate, well, that's kind of an odd question. I don't really know how to answer that. How would I even know what kind of kingdom I'm living for? Well, let me ask you this. What do you want in life? What is most important to you? 
Is it a great job? Is it having your dream home? Is it driving the, the fancy car that gets people to turn their head at the stoplight and say, wow, look at that thing? What, what, what is it that drives your emotions? Do you want the latest technology to eat at the best restaurants, to have your kids go to the most prestigious uh, colleges? Is your life's pursuit entirely for material things? Now, don't get me wrong. Is there anything necessarily wrong with a nice home and a nice car and uh, material wealth or going to a nice restaurant? Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but if that is your life's goal, if that is your life's drive and purpose, if that's what matters most to you, then I would submit to you this morning that you're living primarily for an earthly kingdom. If you care more about the things of this earth than you do about eternity, about the things of the Lord, then you're living for an earthly kingdom. Here would maybe be a better question to kind of frame in your own mind and to kind of help to, to decide, am I living for an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? What stirs your emotions? What, what causes you <laughs> to get angry? What causes you to be sad? What causes you to be happy? Last night, my Yukon Huskies made it to the final four, and that caused great excitement and happiness for me. And there's nothing wrong with getting happy about a sports team. I mean, hey, we're in Georgia. I think you guys have had some success here recently. It's okay to be happy about that, right? But is that the only thing that stirs your emotion is sports? Stirs your emotion is what you see on the news? What you read about what's going on in Wall Street or Washington, D.C.? Or do the things of God ever stir your emotions? Think about Jesus. Did he come here and care primarily about the earthly kingdom or was he primarily concerned with the heavenly kingdom, right? When Jesus saw the Roman soldiers oppressing the people and making them carry uh, their burdens a mile, which that was the law in those days, a Roman soldier could pick anybody and say, you have to carry this for me for a mile. What did Jesus say? Did he say, that's corrupt. They need to stop doing that. He said, no, if somebody compels you to go with them a mile, go with them Twain, go two miles, go the extra mile is where we get that phrase from. When he saw how Caesar, the godless Caesar and all of his corruption and his uh, pagan idolatry and how people would literally worship the Caesar as a god and he saw his picture on all of the money and he saw people paying exorbitant taxes to the Roman Empire, did he say, this is ridiculous? Or did he say, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's? You see, Jesus was more concerned about a heavenly kingdom and not the earthly kingdom. What moved Jesus' emotions? Well, what made him angry? Well, we see Jesus getting very angry at people taking the worship at the temple and using it for their own personal profit, right? He drove the money changers out. He said, get out of here. You're, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. My father's house is a house of prayer. Man, it upset him when people took the worship of God and tried to twist it for their own personal profit. What moved him to sadness? Remember when he went to Lazarus' funeral? Now, what's always interesting to me about that, that excerpt, that account, is that he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, says Jesus wept. He wept. Why? Because he was moved with emotion. He was filled with compassion for those who were hurting, who, had, who were experiencing this great pain and loss of their loved one, Lazarus. What, what made Jesus happy? What made him excited? Remember when that Roman centurion came to him and said, Lord, I want you to heal my servant. You don't even have to go to my house. 
Just say the word and I know he will be healed. And Jesus said, Jesus marveled at him. He said, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. These were the things that moved Jesus and his emotions because he cared about a heavenly kingdom. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what moves us? What causes us to be happy, to be sad, to be angry? Is it only ever earthly things? Or do we care also, or more importantly, about the things of heaven, the kingdom of heaven? Recently, I think I have a picture of the book here. Recently, I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. I think many of you are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's works. They're great books. I mean, they're, I guess, you know, primarily sold or marketed as kids' books, but even as adults, man, there, there's some great, uh, wonderful truth in there. I started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the most famous of, of that seven-book series. But if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia series, you'll know that the last book in the series, called The Last Battle, is, is it's an allegory, and that's what C.S. Lewis, many of his writings were allegorical. They have lots of themes, Christian themes, about redemption and love and sacrifice, and it's really an amazing job of, of painting a biblical narrative into a fictional story. In, of course, the Narnia story, there's children from Earth who magically, one way or another, are able to be transported to this uh, fictional world of Narnia, and Narnia is a land of of kind of a fairy tale land where there are talking animals and there are centaurs and fawns and you know giants and dwarves and all these different creatures and and in the last battle it's it's an allegory really of revelation in the end times and what happens in that story is the true followers of Aslan who is the lion he's representative of Jesus they are remain true to Aslan while meanwhile everybody else is being pulled away they're being deceived and it comes down to this final showdown, the last battle, where the followers of Aslan fight. And then, at, at the end of the battle, there is this doorway standing by itself, but it becomes this magic portal to another place. So after the battle, uh, the followers of Aslan go through the door, and they find themselves in Narnia, which was the place they had been living all along. But as C.S. Lewis describes it in his book, it was Narnia, but it was like the real Narnia. He said, it's kind of like if you were to sit by a window overlooking a valley, a green valley in the mountains or the seaside, and then you were to turn to the other side of the room and see a mirror, and in the mirror kind of catch a reflection of what was outside in the window, it would be the same scene, but, but almost not as real. The scene that you would see out the window would feel like the real thing and, and the mirror would seem like a little bit of just a kind of a lesser reflection. This is what they were experiencing as they got into Narnia, they realized, oh, this is the real Narnia. He said it's almost like every rock and every blade of grass meant more. And then the unicorn, part of that group there, puts it this way, and he writes this in the book. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia so, is, that sometimes, is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. And as you want to read that story, the, the farther in to Narnia they get, the, the better it becomes. And the colors are deeper and just everything becomes more wonderful. And they run, and they don't get exhausted, and it's just everything is amazing. And it's like, oh, this was the real place all along. The place we were in 
is just a shadow of what this place is. And I don't know if I've ever heard a better explanation or a better picture of what I think it's going to be like when we step into eternity. For those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, that know that we will spend eternity with him, I think that is exactly how we will feel. That life lived in God's presence, apart from all of the pain and suffering and mess that we live with in this life, will realize this, this is the real place. This is where I was meant to be all along. Everything that I experienced in life was a little bit like this place, but it was like a cheap version, a cheap imitation, just a reflection in the mirror of what this place is. And in that moment of clarity, I think it's going to become abundantly clear to us that everything, every single thing, every, every experience, every rich, uh, uh, riches, anything that we could ever gather in this life, in comparison to that existence, will be meaningless. And when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is that treasure, this is what he's talking about. Are you living for an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one? So we saw the word kingdom. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to the word treasure. To the word treasure. Look at it again, Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Speaks to the value, right? That's what a treasure is. The kingdom of heaven, here's the statement, the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure you could ever find. I mentioned before, we have so many treasure stories, right? We even have shows that are dedicated to people now that are still trying to find treasures that apparently, you know, there's some credibility to their locations and it's interesting, right? Kind of captivates our imagination. Every now and then though, those stories do become real life. Like we have fictional stories about finding treasure, but, but there have been some real treasures found by regular ordinary people. I think we've got a picture on the screen to show you. Uh, not too long ago, about 30 years ago, over in the UK, there were two men that did just that. Uh, Alex Watling and, uh, or Peter Watling and Eric Laws, I should say. Peter Watling was a farmer. He, uh, he lost his hammer out in the field. Why he had the hammer out in the field, I don't know, but he lost it. And he knew his neighbor, Eric, was kind of an amateur, I don't know what the word is, it, he, he had a metal detector. He, you know, he'd just go out, kind of like a, it was like a hobby for him. So he went to his neighbor and said, hey, grab your metal detector, help me find this hammer. Well, they're out there, and sure enough, beep, 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 you know, the metal detector beep, and it's not the hammer, it's a, it's a fork. He's like, what's a fork doing out in the field? But it's a very old fork. Like, this is not regular, like, this is from our kitchen fork. And then pretty soon they find a coin, and then more coins, and then more utensils. And then pretty soon that they realize is they've stumbled on an old treasure chest that has decayed, and the contents have kind of spilled out because the box, the wooden box that was in, long ago decayed. And then, of course, they get the authorities out there, and the historians, you know, they, and, and pretty soon, within a week, this whole mob descends on their little farm there in Hoxon. It was called the Hoxon Horde there in the UK. And these guys become famous overnight, these great treasure hunters who weren't even trying to find a treasure. They are just trying to find a hammer. Now, unfortunately for Peter and for Eric, it didn't work like it did in Bible times, where if you find the treasure, it becomes yours. It goes to the UK Museum. But they did get a finder's fee, which was, I think, in the neighborhood of a million dollars. So they were okay, all right? They came out just fine. 
And you say, man, what a cool story, right? Wouldn't it be cool to be Eric Laws, to be Peter Watling, to be the person that found that, that ancient, and it was a Roman treasure. It was dated all the way back to when the Roman Empire was, was there in the UK, and you know, some, somebody along the line had left that, that treasure box and forgot about it or gotten lost and, and, until years later that they found it. And I would, I would submit to you this, okay? You read that story, like, oh, that's cool. That'd be, that'd be kind of nice. What if, what if you had a treasure in your backyard? What if you knew that waiting in your backyard was some treasure that had been there for a long, long time just waiting to be discovered? Would you leave that thing sit? Would you be like, ah, you know what? This week's kind of, it's kind of slammed this week. Maybe I'll get to it next week. Maybe, maybe in the summertime, you know, kids and school, there's a lot going on. I'll, I'll probably try to dig it up then. No, I'm pretty sure this afternoon, you'd be out there with your metal detector and your shovel and whatever other thing you needed to find that treasure, and you would not rest until you unearthed it, right? Because you recognize the value of treasure. It is valuable. What treasure can do and how it can change your life and the things you'll be able to do with that money is so valuable to you that you would go to great lengths to find it, to make sure that it's yours. And what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It is valuable. But many of us live and act and go about our day as if it's worthless. We do everything to the contrary. Man, we will value earthly treasures. We'll value that job. We'll value that promotion. We'll value that raise. We'll value the bank account and the 401k and the neighborhood and the car. and We'll value all of those things and we'll go to great lengths to chase all of that. But when Jesus says, I have a much better treasure in the kingdom of heaven, we're like, eh, maybe one day. Maybe when things are a little less hectic. Maybe, maybe when I get kind of through this season of life, then I'll, I'll maybe kind of try to poke around and see if I can find out about that treasure. And what Jesus is saying is, if you truly understand, if you, if you truly knew how valuable it was, you would not delay. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Don't make your life about earthly treasures, because those are fragile. You know, clothes go out of style, and cars get rusted, and houses fall apart, and they need repair, and people can steal money, and all of that stuff can go away. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. You say, well, Nate, how do, how do I do that, though? How do I lay up treasure in heaven? There's, I don't really see a first bank of heaven on the way into church today. Where do we make these deposits? The Bible is very clear that when we are generous, when we help others, when we give, that that is an investment in eternity. The way that I put it uh, before is this past week we were visiting with my grandparents. We were on the road yesterday. And we stopped not, uh, at, uh, at probably our, our favorite, most common place to stop, and that was Chick-fil-A. Um, I, I, think, uh, I feel like we're sometimes single-handedly keeping Chick-fil-A in business, but then, of course, I look around their parking lot and realize, no, there's plenty of people keeping Chick-fil-A in business. Uh, when I go to Chick-fil-A, I always do the same thing. Right? I'll order the same meal, but before I take out the card to pay for the meal, I take out my phone, and I get out the app. Why? Because I want to scan it for rewards. Because when I buy Chick-fil-A, there are two transactions that occur. I buy my food with money that is in my account right now, but I also earn rewards for later on. You see what I'm saying? When you are generous, when you give, whether that's giving to your church, giving to missions, giving to help somebody else who's in need, giving to help somebody who's poor, who's, 
When you give, when you help others monetarily, with your time, with your skills, when you are a generous person, there are two transactions taking place. There is an immediate need that is being filled in the here and now, but there is rewards, heavenly rewards, being laid up to your account. Did you know that? Did you know that heaven has an app with reward systems, okay? And it's even better than Chick-fil-A's reward systems, if you can believe that, because the, Jesus is very clear that that reward, that that treasure is so much greater than anything you could have on this earth. It's almost like if I went to Chick-fil-A and every time I scanned my app, they gave me a Ferrari. I would use that thing all the time, right? But Jesus is saying the rewards in heaven are so much greater than earthly treasures, but do we really believe it? Do we truly believe his word to be true? That's why he says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where you spend your money, that is what you're going to care about. So this, secondly, the second statement I would say underneath that is the greatest investment you could ever make is in God's kingdom. The greatest investment. So not only is the kingdom of heaven the greatest treasure you could ever find, but the greatest investment you could ever make is in God's kingdom. And then thirdly, and finally this morning, third word I want you to see is the word joy. Don't miss this, the word joy. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden in the field, the which... When a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. You know what happens when you make a good trade? Joy. That's what happens in this story. Why is he joyful? Because he just made the deal of a lifetime. When my mom, grown up, she was one of those couponers. Okay. Now, she still does the coupon thing, just not quite to the extent that she used to. I think when you have three teenage boys in the home, it's almost like out of necessity, not because you want to, right? And she, I mean, she would do it. Every, every Sunday, she'd get the Sunday paper with all the coupons, and she'd go through it, cut them all up, and she'd find the deals. Man, she'd find where you know, she would be able to use this coupon, and then it's half off for this, and, like, you know, and she's got, she had this whole system. And she'd come home from the grocery store, and the boys would have to run out there and help mom bring the groceries back from the car. And we'd have all these groceries. And then what would she want to do? Oh, let me tell you how much I paid for these Gatorades. Let me tell you. And for teenage boys, I'm sorry, mom, but we did not care. We could not care less about what you paid. All we care about is what did you bring us? Okay, what's in these bags, right? Why was she so excited to tell us what she had paid? Because she made a good deal. She made a good trade. She got a great discount. You ever seen those shows about extreme couponing? Okay, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, years ago, over 100 years ago now, probably the greatest, or I should say the most lopsided trade in sports ever happened. It does pain me to share this example with you as a Boston Red Sox fan, but nonetheless I will. Back in 1920, the Boston Red Sox, who had won three of the last five World Series, uh, led primarily by their star pitcher, who, yes, he was a pitcher before he became the great slugger, Babe Ruth. He was their star player, great pitcher and also a great hitter. And for some reason, the owner of the Red Sox decided, you know what, now would be a good time to trade that guy away from our organization. And so he called up none other than the New York Yankees, the Red Sox hated rivals, and he said, hey, would you guys be interested in Babe Ruth? And so they 
they haggled it out, and they settled on a, a final price of, I think it was $125,000, which, of course, back then is more than it is today. But still, it was Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth went on to break the home run record, an unprecedented 60 home runs in a season. The New York Yankees would go on to win uh, four more American League pennants, three World Series titles with Babe Ruth, and it would take the Red Sox another 86 years to win another World Series, and the, thus the curse of the Bambino for Babe Ruth was born. Now you ask any historian, you ask any sports fan, go back and analyze that trade, who won the trade? Obviously, the New York Yankees won the trade. But somebody would say, but the Red Sox got $125,000. That was a lot of money. That's not like chump change. How can you say that they lost the trade? Because the New York Yankees got Babe Ruth, right? When you compare the two, yeah, $125,000 is a lot of money, but Babe Ruth is worth a lot more than that. When you make a good trade, and that's what the Yankees did, they had plenty of joy about that. And here's what Jesus wants to teach us that when you understand how valuable the kingdom of heaven is and you trade earthly riches in pursuit of the kingdom of heaven, you will have joy to the extent that if you were to give away everything, if you were to lose everything here in this life and gain the kingdom of heaven, you would still have joy. You say, oh, Nate, so what are you trying to say? Are you saying that we all need to go out and liquidate all of our assets and give all the money away? Well, no. It's not what I'm telling you to do this morning. I will tell you that in the book of Acts, that is what many of the early Christians did. And I know for a fact, because the Bible speaks to it, that they had joy. That they didn't regret that for a second. Folks, I'm not here to be the Holy Spirit in your life and to tell you what you do or need, don't do or don't need to do with with your financial resources, with your time, with your... What I'm here to tell you is that the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that we need to set our sight on it. We need to get a fresh dose and a fresh understanding of what this life to come really means and how much greater it is and how much more fulfilling and joyful it is. And we need to put things in its perspective and realize that life is short, Things are fleeting. Riches will not satisfy. Riches will not bring you the happiness and fulfillment and the joy that you're looking for in life. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And we need to put things in their proper perspective. So which kingdom are we living for? An earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? Be reminded today about what really matters. What do you treasure? Where's your treasure? Have you really been transformed by the truth that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything you could have in this life? And will you choose joy? Will you choose joy? The person who's willing to give up everything else for the treasure of God's kingdom is the one who will have joy. Don't miss out on the joy that God has for you. I'll close with this. I have one last picture here. So, this man here, his name is Charles Studd, or, or as he was better otherwise known, C.T. Studd. My dad, I mentioned to you, he's a pastor. I grew up every Sunday listening to my dad preach. And when you hear somebody preach every single week and actually multiple times a week, you start to learn their habits and the things that they come back to. And there's certain phrases that they always say. And maybe, Pastor Sean, you have some of these and your, your folks can tell me about them. I, just, I think every pastor just kind of has certain phrases that they like to come back to. And for my dad, one of those phrases was, 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He would say that all the time. I didn't learn until much later on who even said that. He would just quote that all the time. And then I learned it was C.T. Studd. And then I began to read a little bit more about C.T. Studd's story. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. And if you're not familiar with C.T. Studd, he grew up in England back in the late 1800s. His dad was very wealthy, very successful businessman. And C.T. Studd was a very gifted athlete. And he played cricket, which, of course, in America, we're like, I don't even know what that is. Basically, it's kind of like baseball, but it was huge. It was the biggest sport in England at that time. And C.T. Studd was the best player of the most popular game in his time. There's, there's people that have said of C.T. Studd, he was like the Michael Jordan of cricket in England at the time. Like that's, he, was, he was it. He was the star. And he was very, had a very promising career, went to college, played there, and then began uh, playing professionally. Again, had everything that you could probably seem to ask for in life, right? Lived in a wealthy country, his father was very successful, very gifted, had a whole life, a promising sports career ahead of him. But C.T. Stead got saved. He had his life transformed by Jesus, and he, he felt God putting it on his heart that he needed to go and share the gospel with people in parts of the world that did not know the name of Jesus. And he couldn't really get away from that. He, bat he battled with it, he wrestled with it for many years, and finally, at the age of 24, it's a very young man, he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow God's calling in my life. I'm going to leave my home, leave my sports career, and I'm going to go to China. And I'm going to share the gospel with people there, and I'm going to try to live my life to serve him. And he did. And then later he went to India. And then later he went to Africa, and he spent the rest of his life sharing the gospel. And, and when he, at age 25, received a very hefty inheritance from his father as the uh, trust had stipulated that he would receive the money at 25, he decided he was going to give it all away. And so here's a man who had every opportunity, every luxury, tons of money coming to him, wonderful sports career. And I think that many of us would look at a guy like that and say, you know what, man? You can do a lot of good right where you're at. Play sports, use that platform, tell people about Jesus, use your money, live a nice life, help a lot of people. You, you don't need to go to China. Let other people go to China. Let other people go to India. Let other people go to Africa. You keep a hold of what you've got because you've hit the lottery. But that's not how C.T. Studd saw it. Because at the end of his life, this is what he said. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. At the end of the day, what really matters is not how much money I had or how great of a sports career I had or how nice of a home I had. What matters is what I did for Christ and to the extent that that's how I live my life, I don't regret it at all. And one day, all of us will, will be at that point where we'll have to look back at our life and say, okay, what did I do that really, really mattered, that I'm really, truly proud of? And if we'll understand the truth of what Jesus is teaching in this passage, what we'll see is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is far more valuable than anything we could ever have in this life. Let's pray as we close our service. Lord, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that this parable contains. Lord, I pray that you would, in each of our hearts, help us to understand what that means for us, that we would truly get a hold of what you're trying to do in this world, that we would value your kingdom, that we would value eternity, that we would value people, uh, the lost souls of people that don't know you, that we would put all of those things ahead of our own desires, our own earthly kingdom, and that we would follow in your footsteps in that way. 
Lord, I pray that you'd bless the close of this service. And Lord, I pray that if there is somebody here today that does not know you as their personal Savior, that today they would make that great decision to put their faith and trust in you. And Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name.